Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Here for Dean McCulloch's book, a memoir, All Happy Families, and I think we're going to be engaging in an incredible conversation about her work and um, the memoir form in general. Speaking of, so, so <laughs> you put it out there, Florida. Sure, sure. She did, right? You were there when she said that. Um, yeah, yeah. But you've taken away her mic, so but now what's she saying? We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. So Dean is a former managing editor of the Paris Review, a former senior editor of Hill House Magazine, and a founding editorial director of Hill House Books. She was a founding director of the uh, Toto Santos Writers Workshop. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Hill House, the, the New York Times, O, the Oprah Magazine, Vogue, Allure, and the North American Review, among others. She lives with her family in New York. I'm very happy to have her here in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, she'll be uh, joined by a uh, Los Angelino that we all know, uh, Laurie Weiner. She was the uh, founding um, um, founding editor of the LA Review of Books. I was saying Larb, Larb, yeah, because I, like I think of Thai food, right? Uh, <laughs> all the time, Larb. And she was a, um, a, a drama critic for the Wall Street Center at Journal and a chief theater critic for the LA Times. So um, please welcome them both. So we're going to start with our short reading from the book. I learned by reading the book that I should be calling him Jean. That's right. So I've been pronouncing it wrong for 23 years. But it's never too late to learn. It's never too late to learn. To know when to. That's how, yeah. That's how you learn these things. I had to write a whole book just so you knew what my well, you could, name you was. You could have corrected me. I could have. Okay. But whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning short bit, um, as many of you know, not all of you know, uh, this is a memoir about an event that took place uh, 35 years ago in my life. It was a wedding, I was, it was my wedding, and so I'm going to read from the very beginning of that. August 13th, 1983 was the day of my wedding. I was 25, a messy splatter of freckles across my nose, the final badge of childhood. Just before sunset that afternoon, I would put on a vintage lace dress that swooped gently off the shoulder in a style I saw as reminiscent of Sophia Loren in her glory days, and my mother saw as suggestive of the sale rack at a yard sale. In the house that morning, they were talking in various ways. In the pantry, the boy delivering flowers, sprays of lilies of the valley, and a basket of rose petals for the wedding cake was being bossed around by Johanna, the Irish cook. Johanna never got to boss anybody in the household. Everyone, the housekeeper, the gardener, everyone disregarded her. She was a small woman in a hairnet whose wisps of dry black hair nevertheless escaped 
and were often found floating in the Vichy swaths. She stamped her foot, a white orthopedic shoe. Get out of my kitchen, she was telling the delivery boy from the tailor shop. I'm too busy, she scolded. Go. In the summer, my half-brothers, three men in their early 40s, sons from my father's first marriage, huddled in conversation. They all had beards and ready laughs. They had come to the wedding with their spouses and their children from the far-flung places where they lived lives of their own. Half-siblings, and the term was apt. I half knew them, and I half didn't. Scott raised llamas in New Mexico. In Florida, Keith painted lush floral landscapes, some with naked women. In Colorado, Rod was engaged in investment strategies for a business no one understood. In my father's sunroom, the morning light angled across the sizal rug, dust motes played in the air, and my three half-brothers were talking together, shoulders hunched, coffee mugs in hand. The gardener, Vincent, in yellow protective earmuffs and a fishing cap, drove his seated mower and even rose up and down the sloping lawn as he did every morning of summer. This day, steering around the large white party tent erected earlier in the week for the reception. My wedding was scheduled to take place at five in the afternoon. It had been timed and debated for months, the proper moment for a wedding. The ceremony was to be situated by the garden, up by the house, with a view giving out to the sea. Situated. That was the term used by Ruth Ann Middleton, the professional wedding planner my mother had hired to marshal the wedding to perfection. A white wire gazebo had been placed there, and the florist would weave the lattice and garlands of pink roses. Five in the afternoon was the time the light would be rich gold, particular to late summer. A bagpiper in a kilt had been hired by my mother, so at the ceremony's conclusion, he guide the guests from the garden down to the tent, braying the union of husband and wife as the setting sun burnished rose through the trees. You know, men in kilts don't wear any underwear, my half-brother Keith had told us the day before the wedding, as we drove to visit our father. Seriously, not a stitch, just a pink ribbon tied around the big fella. My siblings and I were in the family station wagon when he told us that, on our way to Southampton Hospital. Our father lay in a coma in the ICU, having had a massive stroke two days before the wedding, leaving our home for what we suspected might be the last time strapped to an ambulance stretcher, to strap a thin, final harness to our life. He had had the stroke following an abrupt withdrawal from alcohol after a lifetime of drinking, having gone cold turkey at my mother's insistence so, in her words, he'd sober up for the wedding. On the way to the hospital, my brother Scott had insisted we stop at the fried chicken place off Route 27 in case we got hungry. And as we stood watching our father breathe, the bucket of chicken sat unopened at the nurse's station of the ICU, filling the air with its irrelevant fragrance. We had bowed to my mother's insistence that the wedding should go forward 
despite our father's condition. Because, she claimed, it's what daddy would want. Besides, she added, all my friends are already en route. And so a man with no underwear in a plaid skirt was going to bray on our front lawn at sunset as my father lay in a coma over in the next town. The morning of my wedding, an easy breeze blew down the beach. My teenage nephews sat on their surfboards just beyond the break. All was calm and serene from the lilting vantage point of the sea. Occasionally a swell would captivate them and they angled their boards toward the shore, riding in on elegant curls of foam. Later that afternoon, my mother would pin the family veil on my head. She'd mutter about how I should have let her get a proper hairdresser to tame my wild beach hair. Then she'd call the hospital and instruct them that no matter what happened that evening to her husband, they were not to call our house because, she went on to say, we were having a party. The morning of August 13, 1983, the day settled into a steady rhythm near the tip of Long Island. Taking her swim before breakfast, which she believed was de rigueur in summertime, my mother walked into the sea. So your wedding day was very complex. <laughs> yes. yes, and <laughs> and your both of your parents, but now we're talking about your mother, are, are really uh, indelible characters that come out of this book. Um, your mother was very concerned about what was proper. Um, she wanted the, di the day and the time to be exactly right. She wasn't sure that your wedding dress, which was from a thrift store, was was proper. Um, she would have preferred that you married someone who was in the social register. Um, so she wasn't sure your, cho your choice of groom was proper. And she wanted your, your father uh, to be sober for the wedding. So she, she de demanded that he stop drinking, which caused the stroke, which sent him to the hospital. Um, and we get this theme where everyone's trying to do the best that they can in this situation. And the, when your mother makes that phone call and says, don't call here no matter what, we start to then wonder about her marriage, her judgment, <laughs> and, and what also that must have been like for you. And so you open with this beautiful scene, and I imagine it would take you a lifetime to figure all of this out. Like, because you couldn't figure out what you felt that day because so much was going on. So um, did you, do you feel like the book was your process of understanding all of those complex things that were going on that day? Well, it's interesting because I, uh, this is a story, the story of my wedding and the circumstances of it, the reason my father had the massive stroke, was a story that I'd actually been avoiding a long time. It wasn't something I talked about. It wasn't something most of my friends knew about unless they knew me well enough that they'd been at the wedding at the time. And even then, some of the wedding guests didn't know why my father wasn't there. And um, I was I was writing an essay about something else. 
but it was it took place at the same house the house of my childhood and i was offered a contract to write that as a book and i very quickly agreed to that without having any idea what the rest of the book was going to be like um and and i realized what was that idea well i mean the the essay that i had written uh had been commissioned for an anthology called money changes everything and it was 22 different writers writing about rags for riches riches for rags rags for rags riches for riches whatever whatever way you want to you want to slice that and my essay had been about how i had grown up in this house by the sea which for all intents and purposes might look like we had this beautiful life because if you're just walking down the beach you might think and i am guilty of this too when i'm walking down the beach and i look at a beautiful house i go wow those people must have an amazing life so what i was trying to get at in that original essay is that in fact um depression and alcoholism are universal conditions and what was going on behind the dune there might not be as rosy as what people thought and therefore don't assume that money means happiness but what i had in writing that it took me five thousand words to write that essay um what i had neglected to appreciate in having to turn that into 65,000 words was i was going to have to dig in pretty deep to what had uh, had transpired in the, behind the dune and i had uh, told my students when i teach memoir i had said always look for the story that you have been trying to avoid because right there may be the kernel of what you're trying to say and the one image i had always had and sort of tried to push to the side was of me in my wedding dress in my mother's bathroom because i was getting married at home and the string quartet was playing people were being seated and i could hear that and i could hear the sea off in the distance and we'd just been to visit my father and he was on life support and i hear my mother dialing her little pink princess phone and i'm thinking who the hell could she be calling right now any minute now i have to go downstairs and get married given all these circumstances and i heard her call the hospital and say if anything happens tonight don't call this house we're having a party and i couldn't lose that image that was always with me so i i thought i better try to get my arms around this mm -hmm. um and i had at that point i had a lot of well i had 30 years of perspective on this and I had a lot of people that were no longer on the planet who would have not liked me to tell the story, i.e. my mother, were gone. Uh, but it still was a lot of work to get my arms around it. And, uh, but mm -hmm. here we are. Yeah. Um, you, uh, did you write that, that other essay, the, uh, the one that you had been... Yes, that had, that had already been published. That's where uh, an editor saw it and gave me a book contract. Mm -hmm. That had been published in the anthology, and it had also the first serial had been in a magazine, so she'd seen it there. Um, you know, there's a passage. Uh, it's not terribly long, but it's it's um, 
toward the front of the book, and you write about a neighbor uh, in East Hampton who did, in fact, walk into the ocean and kill himself. And you said, despite his beautiful children, despite his, his uh, beautiful wife, despite his wealth. Um, and it's, it's early in the book, and I thought when I read it, and, and, and you said, you know, as a child, you always knew that, that you sensed that you would, would not be protected from anything that, that you know, people have to endure in life. But you, you address the issue of, of wealth and how you felt about it and how you worried that people would judge you when they found out where you lived, things like this. And, and it's a beautifully written part of the book, but I did wonder when I read it, in this moment that we're living in, where, where, where the culture has asked us to rethink everything that we might have thought about privilege and whiteness and all of that, that did you feel that it was necessary to kind of say that near the, near the front of the book to say, you know, hey, you may not think at this moment in time that this story matters, but it does matter, and to remind people of that. Well, because actually that particular passage you're thinking of, which I believe starts so money, what of it? A gray house on the beach and a beautiful tent where the grown-ups danced at night. All of that might lead one to believe that my life as a child was more beautiful than yours. One of my earliest memories was of our neighbor swimming into the sea and being dragged out by the Coast Guard and weeping that he had been saved and crying again and again all summer long till he finally did it for keeps. And so I learned early on that a beautiful house by the sea could just as easily be a jail cell as a beautiful house by the sea. Um, it's, it's funny now for me because, needless to say, that was then and this is now. My children aren't raised in this way and they themselves are guilty of looking at photographs of that house and going, Mom, your life must have been amazing. I'm like, you know the story, you know it wasn't. Mm -hmm. But you know, it is easy to make that assumption. And to write a book like this right now, I'm not unmindful of the fact that we are in a culture where something might stink of white privilege if you're not very careful about how you go about addressing the universal themes within it, despair, alcoholism, family dysfunction. So I did feel it was important to put it in, uh, but it was also a part that had been part of the original essay because it had been for an anthology about money mm -hmm. itself. But I, you know, I'm, I'm still uh, very cautious about that um, because it, it's very easy for somebody to look at this and go, Haha, you know, I'm not going to bother with this. Why do I care about this story right now? There's so many other stories. True enough, true enough. Mm -hmm. But um, if, I've, if I've told it well enough, hopefully somebody will find something else in there. And that, well, we'll see. Mm -hmm. I did the best I could. Let's talk about your father, a, a very interesting man. Um, he was an older father, yeah. uh, so you really didn't know him, you know, in his in his younger days. He had had another family first. Um, he 
Uh, he lived abroad all through World War II. He was an intelligence officer during World War II. He spoke 10 languages fluently. He was, he, he was conversing in many other languages. He was constantly learning languages. And he, you know, it's, I think probably instilled in you a great respect for language and learning and, and all that stuff. And um, is a big, which is a huge part of your character. Uh, on the other hand, you say something about being the child of an alcoholic parent, and you say you learn as the child of an alcoholic parent that your words don't matter at times. And I thought that was, do you, do you want me to read you that sentence? Do you know what the sentence I mean? I, I do, but I'd love to hear you read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you say, um, Children of alcoholics forget how to speak or more accurately lose their belief that their words have any power to make a difference or to matter. And I was just interested about these two uh, influences coming from your, your father on you. A, you, your words don't matter, and B, your love of, of language and words and learning. Came together. Well, it, you know, I thought about this when I was writing the book. I thought... What was it about this guy that he cared so much about learning other languages and basically adapting other cultures? I mean, he would every year he would learn a new language, and during this that summer he would take us traveling to a place that he could use it. So we would go to Africa so that he could go off and speak Swahili to a Maasai tribesman. Or we would play hide and seek at the Parthenon, and he would teach us how to count to 10 in Greek. It was very important to him, and yet at the same time, it seemed that he could communicate more freely to a Maasai tribesman or to a cab driver in New York with whom he might be speaking Urdu then he could, in his own language, to his family, but I think to most people. And I think alcohol became a way that he lost his inhibitions, as it often starts there for people. Um, and, and he was braver in languages that had nothing to do with his own background or his own culture. So there was this juxtaposition. As far as my talking about losing my voice within the framework of having an alcoholic father. Um, I, in writing this book, I had to ask myself, why was it at the age of 25, I didn't feel that I had the agency to say, time out people. My father is on life support right now and there is a tent on the lawn, and my fiance's family is here, and I don't care. You guys can all go have a party. We're out of here. I'm not getting married in these circumstances. Why did I not feel I could raise my hand and stop the show? I think there were the two twin forces of, in my family. My mother cared so much about social protocol, social decorum, children should be seen and not heard, and I was the child of an alcoholic, which means I had gotten really good at disappearing into the background and watching these messes unfold before me and losing agency even when I was the one getting married, when theoretically this was my show, suddenly it was her show. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and there's that tension between your mother's wanting everything to be proper and right, where something is not right, something very right. big is not right, and that is that is a beautiful part of the of the story, and beautiful as a writer in a writerly sense, not as in a human sense. Well, thank you. I mean, she had you know her credo in life was, we're going to get through this thing with grace and style if it kills us. That was what she taught her three daughters, that if it kills us, this is what we're doing. And um, she really did not want my father's drinking to derail this big event. Whether it was a big event for me or for her, well, who knows? I think for her it was a pretty big event. Um, and so she was going to just plow through it. And I still don't know to this day why nobody advised her on a medical detox for that man. I don't know if it just wasn't done that much in the early 80s mm -hmm. or whether she didn't, maybe she didn't bother to ask anybody because she thought the health shakes and the B cell shots would do the trick. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. But I do know that she was bound and determined that we were going to go forward with the wedding. Mm -hmm. In fact, when we were in the ICU, or we were in the ER right after my father had had the stroke, it was the first thing she told the doctors, we're having a wedding in my house this weekend, before we heard much about what his prognosis was going to be. Yeah, um, and, and in a way the book is about the dissolution of three marriages. Um, your parents, who they did stay married until the end. The marriage of the, that we're watching at the beginning, the wedding, and then your your in-laws, which you know is kind of funny in a way because you're drawn to that family. You want to be a part of that family. They seem so stable right. and normal. And then right after you get married, um, they break up because uh, first of all, your father's death did influence Reem as your father-in-law to kind of think about his life, but also they were taking a what sounds like a very innocuous course, which is journal writing at the Y in Camden, Maine, and in writing in his journal, your father kind of discovers that he's, uh, your father-in-law discovers he's unhappy with his life, and now, that, now this marriage is, is blowing up right after your marriage, so, um, but, but they seemed so stable. That must have been, you know, uh, was, were, you, were you, was your husband Dean, uh, were, they, were you, was this shocking, this announcement? Well, yeah, it was. And this is uh, the family I was marrying into. I was, I was kind of had fallen in love with the entire package. It wasn't just Dean. It was his whole family. I wanted the white picket fence in Maine. I wanted the mom that was going to knit me sweaters and teach me how to ice a cake and all of these things. And, uh, and yet we went up there. Uh, when the original announcement was made to us, we were up there for a week cruising around on a boat with them because my uh, father-in-law was a big sailor and he wrote about, about boats. Um, so we're setting sail on this um, cruise around Penobscot Bay that's going to take four days, and on the first night, when there's no escape from the boat, they tell us <laughs> that um, they're splitting up because my father-in-law had fallen in love with another woman. So there was there was nowhere for us to go. Um, and and as I 
go on in that the whole second section of the book is about that family and it it basically takes place over one christmas holiday where all the siblings are home for the week and it all revolves around ritual much the way a wedding does this was their christmas traditions which they were holding to even though every night after dinner we were having these sessions in the living room in which everybody was kind of going dad you fucking asshole and um, he was having to sit in his uh, lazy boy chair and just take it and basically you know he said um, when when Jay's dad was taken out like that I mean that could happen to any of us and I'm not getting any younger so I'm going to seize the day and this is what I want to do but um, he had before he had confessed it to his wife he confessed it to his journal. And they were taking a journal writing class at the, the local Y. And um, I think <laughs> it was almost one of these things where it's, it's almost like a memoir within a memoir. They hadn't ever really sat down and written honestly their thoughts down. And in so doing, he kind of confessed to the journal that he had fallen in love with another woman. And then everything sort of fell in or fell apart from there. Yeah, it's, uh, you get a sense of these families just trying to do the best that they can, but really, you know, people are not doing that <laughs> that well in, in trying to, you know, keep be honest and keep a family together. I mean, it's, everything is just a, just a complete mess. Um, and then they go, they go out, uh, the family, the, you know, Dean's family goes out to do I, to play ice hockey, and the one, and Raymond Jr. ends up bloodying his father's face with a hockey puck, which is one of those no accident kind of right. situations. Yeah. They were, they were, he was, the, my father-in-law was a, about to take leave of the family and, and go off into his future, but he, he wanted to stop and have one last hockey game with his kids. They were constantly playing games. It was all charades all the time, which I, again, I love that. I thought, this is fun. This is a lot better than sitting around people yelling at each other drunkenly. I mean, this is kind of cool. So uh, they were on the uh, frozen lake, and yeah, that one of his sons uh, hit the puck and it went right into his head. And so he, he fell down and his head was bleeding. And it, was, it ended up being a minor thing, but the irony was that he had to be packed back into the car and taken home to his wife that he was in the process of literally leaving. He'd already packed up his stuff so she could take care of him and kind of stitch him back together before he actually left. Um, getting back to your dad for a moment, um, he wrote stories for you about a character named Franklin, who was an octopus. Right. Um, and they're, they're very amusing stories. Two of them are included in the book. And, um, and I can't help thinking that your father was trying to tell you something about himself when he was writing these stories. Franklin is an octopus, and he goes to a bar, and he orders eight scotches at lunch and drinks them all down and then he he tails a cab and he's pointing in eight different directions all at once and and um, and he's very there's something very lovable about him. He's freakishly talented because he's an octopus and he's really doesn't have a home. He's really out of place. He's he's you know an octopus on dry land and I felt that your father was kind of trying to express something about himself uh, to you when he was writing those stories. Well, it's just a pity you couldn't have been my father's friend. 
because I think he may have just uncovered it all. Um, yeah, what was uh, it was something I did, and maybe this was you know the uh, developing editor in me. But one thing I was trying to do, especially as my father's drinking got worse and worse progressively, was try to bring him down to earth by asking him to write these stories. And so he started writing about this alter ego, Franklin, who was an alcoholic octopus, <laughs> right? So he'd go sit in a bar and he'd shout away. And my father's stories are very charming because they'd be these sweet little stories of Franklin narrating his conversations in the bar with these other people. But the truth of the matter is that he would either be having eight scotches or sometimes he would have a, a double, which meant he was having 16. Sometimes he'd have a triple and he would be having 24. And I don't think my father ever <laughs> figured out that in writing a child's story and giving them to his child that he was writing about an alcoholic octopus. And yeah, he wasn't at home anywhere but in a bar. And I think my father may or may not have been aware that he was he wrote them in bars. Like the last one I have, he gave me right before my wedding shower. So I was way too old to be asking for these stories, but I had a method to my madness, which was keep his mind on this series that we're doing. And he wrote me on the envelope and he said, you're too old for my stories now. And this is, this is the last one. I finally managed it in a bar in Berlin. And he'd been in Berlin, and that's where he had written it. But he would sit in bars by himself and write these stories to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a touching relationship. Um, one more thing about your mother that I wanted to, uh, there's a, just a, it's not a big, it's a just kind of a throwaway, but, but she had all of these amazing clothes, all of these, you know, dresses from the 50s and 60s, these dinner parties, and, and, uh, and sh you were going through her clothes at a point in your life when you were upset. We won't, I don't want to give anything away because we'll get there, but you were upset. You were having a difficult time. You're going through her beautiful dresses. She says, pick something, take a dress. And you go through the dresses, and you can't imagine wearing any of them. And then finally you see one that, that, that you think is really beautiful. And you say, this one I could, I could really see, this one I think I could wear. And she says, oh, no, 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 not, not that one. And, I, and it made me very sad because I think she, that impulse to be generous and then to take it back. And then it turns out we do find the, fi uh, the fate of the dresses at the end of the book, which is that no one... They don't really go anywhere. They go to they go to the thrift store. And yeah, get, yeah. And so, and so to hold that dress back from you. Well, she held it back. This was. There's a scene. the The third section of the book begins with me and my mother up in the attic of the house where the wedding had taken place. But it's five years later, and I had never opened my wedding presents because my father died right after the wedding, and my mother said, "Get this clutter." out of the hallway, I'm planning a funeral here. So all of the presents had gone up to the attic. Five years passed, and at this point, my own marriage, unsurprisingly, was falling apart, having had such an incredible beginning. <laughs> um, and uh, 
she went up with me to open all of her presents five years later. So we were sitting around in the attic because we had to divide them into my family and Dean's family. And um, while we were up there, we found all of her old dresses that had been stored up there. And she had had all these feathered ball gowns that women wore in those days. And my mother was sort of this juxtaposition that during the day in the 60s, she'd have her black armband on and she'd be marching for women's rights and civil rights. And then at night, she'd put on her feathered ball gown and spray the Chanel and she and my father would go out and go dancing at these big parties. So all of the, those dresses were up there along with her entire collection of Lily Pulitzer ships and all these other period pieces that ended up going to the thrift store. But, and she kept wanting me to try them on, and I didn't want to try them on because it just felt like I was putting on her costume, and it creeped me out. But there was this one beautiful silk dress that my father had brought her back from a trip to China when they had first been courting. And I wanted that because it was so gorgeous. And she said, nope, that's mine. You're still young. Someday some guy might give you a silk dress of your own but this one is mine to keep. And I thought, wow, really? You're like this really old lady now, but you're going to hold it back. And I, I couldn't figure out, is she holding it back because it was like the last shred of some kind of romance or some kind of possibility? Or was she just holding it back because I wanted it? It's, it's impossible to know because with this kind of a person, both things were probably true at the same time. Um, and then your own marriage, as you said, falls apart after five years in a very undramatic way. Uh, it's, it's the most kind of quiet, non-angry uh, you know, dissolution of a marriage. Um, you make him a plate of scrambled eggs with cheese and mustard, which is a secret ingredient. And Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> And, and um and and it's over and and I wondered about you know all of the trauma and the drama of the of the older generation just made you guys shy, do want to do it differently didn't go in that direction was it was it really as as quiet and uh, peaceful almost as it seemed well, I don't know there are other people here that might have a different um, opinion because they certainly know Dean but um, um, as as far as I'm concerned, it was a case of two people who knew each other in college and really were going in very different directions. And it was very clear by the time we were in our late 20s that the directions were probably not going to find their way back to each other. I, at that point, was um, running the Paris Review and having to take writers out late at night to dinners. And Dean... Uh, was floating in an isolation tank and was sort of leaving biomedical engineering and going more into the field he's now in, which is therapy. He's a therapist. Um, but he just finally said one day, he's the one that said it, but it could have been me too, just sort of said, this is a house of cards and the cards are falling to the ground. And um, there was never a big bang or any sort of yelling or screaming. We didn't have children. You know, he got his wedding <laughs> presents back. I, I suppose I took mine. Um, and 
and we're still friends. He he was very, very, very involved in the writing of this memoir, actually, and I don't think I could have done it without not only his support and his okay, but really his substantial contribution as well. He, he supplied a lot of um, missing information very generously with me. Yeah, I mean, some people you're just much better as friends than, you know, we just should never have gotten married. Mm -hmm. And it could well have been that because I was trying so hard to separate myself from my family of origin and the alcohol that I kind of ran into not only his arms, but the arms of his mother, who I just thought was this amazing mother figure. I'd never met one like that. Um, and, you know, and she stayed my friend till the day she died. Um, was there, um, in writing this book, do you, did you come to see your mother and father differently? Did you, were you able to forgive more? Yeah, I, I mean, I think particularly my mother, I wouldn't have been able to understand her and let her off the hook had I not become a mother myself. And I think that was a very important part of it because when you become a mother, you understand that you can want the best, but you're gonna fuck up occasionally. And um, I, I think in, in understanding, then going back to this weekend of the wedding and trying to understand it, I think maybe what she was trying to do was she was so sick of my father's alcohol derailing family events. And, you know, I'd grown up with a guy that would fall apart very theatrically in front of my little friends at my birthday party and stuff like that. And I think she was like, this is not going to happen this time. Do you want to be at the wedding? You got to sober up. So I was able to understand more nuances of where she was coming from once I had children of my own and I had to figure out how to make the world perfect and safe for them knowing that that was never going to happen. When you know a tower was crumbling literally outside our window one day, how was I supposed to do that? Mm -hmm. And that, that helped me to understand mm -hmm. her, yeah. And, and had you been out of touch with Dean? Did you did you approach him when you were thinking of publishing this book and to get his well, approval or? Yeah, I mean, Dean had been telling me for years. There were, we, uh, over the 30 years of our having known each other since we were married, he was always saying to me, anytime we'd see each other, you really need to write about this. And I was like, well, if I ever get around to it, you're gonna have to help me. So I finally did contact him a few years ago when I was starting to put pen to paper. And um, I said, I'd like to come out. He lives in Seattle. I'd like to come out and spend a weekend talking to you about some of this stuff if, if you're up for it. And he goes, yeah, I, I'd love to do that. So we sat on this boat. He lives on a boat. And chiefly, he had been the last person to see my father alive. And he had gone over to the hospital unbeknownst to me and the day after the wedding, and he had matched my father's breathing, heavy breathing, because he was, from his own studies, 
he believed that if you match the breathing of a coma victim, you have a better chance of maybe being heard. And he took my father through the whole wedding. And he ended with, you can go now. And he had told me that story years later. So I wanted him to tell me that story again because I said, this is not a work of fiction. It's a memoir. I can't tell this story because I wasn't there. So I need you to really supply all the missing details. And, um, and he, he did very patiently. And there were a few other times when I would write him an email or I would call him and I'd say, am I making this up or did you guys really do a living crash in the middle of Hamden, Maine in like 20 below weather every Christmas? And he'd go like, yeah, no, we did that. You're right, we did that. And, and so he, was, he sort of fact-checked a lot of stuff too. And he was the first person I sent the manuscript to. Long before I sent it to my own editor, I sent it to Dean and asked him if he had any changes or anything. And then finally your father died the day after the wedding. Yeah. And you know, one thinks about how he may have control over when they decide to leave because right. he did wait until the day after. Well, he waited until the day after, but it's also true that um, the ultimatum he was living under at that point is my mother said if he ever wanted to live at home anymore he had to stay sober and she had put him in a little hotel a residential hotel um where she said all the widowers and divorcees stay whatever and uh when i had gone over to see him he told me that they were building him bookshelves in september and i took that to mean that he was going to drink because what he was saying is they're building me bookshelves because I'm not going home to your mother because I'm going to be drinking as soon as this is all over, this wedding is over. Mm -hmm. And the last conversation I had had with him was the week before the wedding and he told me at that point he'd been sober for about five days. And um, he told me that he was writing a toast for the wedding, but he said to me then, he said, but after I give it, I'm gonna drink, that's only fair. So even though I did not have the medical knowledge to know that basically he was gonna have a massive stroke because he had gone cold turkey after living on alcohol and being 74 years old, I was aware of the fact that he was choosing alcohol over the family. I hate to end on that note, but can we do a time for some questions? Yeah, um, uh, if, uh, if anyone has a question, yeah.
Well, I think it depends on what your definition of a family is, quite frankly. Um, I mean, there's the, there's the nuclear family, and you can always find plots if you want to talk about family as a narrative arc mechanism. You'll always find plots in, in theater, in film, in fiction, in nonfiction um, that is both horror and comedy, because that's what life is. But I would think that most people, as they go through their lives and move beyond their nuclear family, find other family groups um, within their, the structure of their lives and the choices they make, whether it's within work, whether it's within their culture, whether it's just in friendship groups. So in that way, I see family as, you know, in, to be ridiculously general about it, I see it as, as sort of a... Um, a life preserver through everything else that we're going through. But I don't mean necessarily mom, dad, kids, and dogs, and cats, or whatever, fish, yeah, right, I'm the face of my own family. <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't uh, easy to go back over a lot of this stuff. Um, something happened when I was starting to write this book, which was I, I've been, I've moved a few times, so I have an enormous amount of stuff in storage right now, and including 25 boxes of books, which is bumming me out, so I don't have access to my books. But there was one particular box of books I wanted that, that just had some memoirs in it that I had underlined a lot when I was in graduate school and blah, blah. And I asked the movers to bring it to my office. And they brought the wrong box. And they brought a box that had across the top in black magic marker, summer of 1983. And it had been taped up. The tape had yellowed with time. And it was a box I'd been avoiding. I didn't want that box, and there it was literally in my office staring me down. So I opened it up, and the first thing on the top was a file that said wedding. And I opened it up, and it was all these cards that I had received right after my wedding. And they said, congratulations on your nuptials. It was a beautiful day, followed by, we're so sorry for your loss. And... Um, so I thought, okay, well, here we are. Here, here's a way in. The other thing that was in this box, and this is somewhat uncanny, is uh, it, my master's thesis that I had also completed that summer at Columbia. And I had written my thesis on a short story called The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield. And in that story, uh, an aristocratic British family is preparing for their annual garden party, and they hear a livery, a delivery guy has been killed right down the street. His horse has shied, and he has broken his neck. And the eldest daughter goes to her mother as her mother's getting ready for the party and says, we cannot go ahead with this party. 
a man dying down the street and the mother says don't be absurd don't be extravagant now i had i had written my thesis on this two months before my wedding right same story same plot but it wasn't until i opened that frigging box in my office all these years later that i went holy shit it's amazing what the mind won't see if it doesn't want to see it if it doesn't want to take it in I mean, not at one point did I think, wow, life is imitating art in a hideous fashion. Not once. <laughs> so I guess what, what I had to do was embrace the connection that was being made. And at the same time, it was not easy to go back through all of that, to go through those cards and letters. And then also to um, access all the memory I needed. Um, from, and a lot of people whose voices I have not heard in a long time. And you really have to do, I, I've said before, it, it's like having a literary seance in your own head. You have to really listen for those people who haven't been speaking to you for a long time before you kind of can hear their voices again. And that becomes another tricky part of writing this kind of a uh, memoir about an event that took place such a long time ago. Thank you for that question. Uh, yeah, this this particular house did feel like a character to me, um, and it launched me on a big thought process about home versus real estate, because for a long time it had held the life of my family. And a, a lot of people, not just my family, but a lot of friends over the years and even into my children's generation had memories of that particular place. And there'd been some really happy times and some very miserable times in this house. After my mother died in 2003, my sisters and I sold it and suddenly it was real estate. And the real estate broker, this is in the book, said to us, relax, people flip real estate all the time. And I thought a lot about that term, that you put your home on one side of a seesaw, right? And then a real estate broker comes and jumps on the other side, and your home goes tumbling into the air, and it falls down on the other side, and it's not your home anymore. It's a property with a price tag. And that was, to me, that was sort of part of the arc of this book. It begins in front of the house on the beach, 1983, in the morning. My mother going swimming in the morning, the day of my wedding. And it ends with me seeing the house for the last time after it had been sold to a hedge fund manager because the area was now the Hamptons and it was going to be a completely different thing. And they, I had heard that they had demoed it, demolished it. So I went back 
to the beach. I happened to be in the area with my kids for New Year's, and I went back thinking there would be nothing there, but they had only demolished the house from the inside at that point. The structure was still there. And so when I looked at it for the last time, the uh, glass in the windows was broken, and it was just shards. But the sun was setting. So it begins at the, you know, the beginning of the day in 83. This is 2003. The sun was setting. And the last image in the book is that I used to believe when I was young and the sun would set red on the window panes, I would imagine that the house was filled to the brim with roses. So that's how I end it, is that was sort of my farewell to the house, even though it was just shards of glass at that point. They were still little shards to me of, of roses. Um, and, and now it's a completely different structure on a different, you know, in a different world in East Hampton, I suppose. Only the sand remains, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it felt very much like a character to me. Thank you. Um, I didn't write from photographs. In fact, this photograph was from my wedding, but it's because um, the book designer who was designing the cover asked me to give some photographs of the house and the wedding. So I literally went and found my wedding album, which was also in the box I'd been avoiding the said summer of 1983. Um, and then I, I was able to look at it, you know, and the bagpiper was in one, you know, so now we know he didn't have any underwear on, la la la. Um, and, and it was interesting to see. I was glad I hadn't used photographs, actually. I think they would have gotten in my way in writing because I think I needed much purer access to the images in my own memory because, as you know, memory is not perfect, but it's your emotional truth. And so for that, you don't want the photograph. You want access to your emotional truth. Okay, well, thank you. Thank John. you. Thank you all. Thank you. Yes. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.